Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olibest. For me, one of the most memorable quotes from Tara Westover's book, Educated, is where she says, Never again would I allow myself to be made a foot soldier in a conflict I did not understand. In our previous episode, I described exactly this phenomenon in my own life. When I voted against marriage equality in California in 2008, I allowed myself to be made a foot soldier in a cause I did not understand. Since that time, I have changed my thinking and I've tried to atone for what I see as a grievous moral error. But until now, I had never taken the time to really become educated on the topic of LGBTQ history. So this has been an incredibly meaningful journey for me. When I thought of Obergefell versus Hodges as a critical text for breaking down patriarchy, I knew exactly who I hoped would be my reading partner. He's a dear friend with whom I've talked about this issue in the past, and he's probably the smartest person I know. It's Matthew oh, Nelson. I've been a lot of people. <laughs> Not true. Um, I'm so happy to welcome you back today for episode two on our four episode series on this topic. So Matthew, thank you for coming back to the podcast today. Of course. As we start this second episode, we're going to dive into the text, which is more traditional for what we've done in the past on the podcast. Um, I guess before we jump into the actual Supreme Court case, there's a lot of kind of setting the stage that needs to take place. So as I'm sure your devoted learned listeners of this podcast will surmise <laughs> by now, the Venn diagram of patriarchal oppression that falls on women and on the LGBTQ community has, you know, much overlap. T to state it differently, patriarchy creates the necessary conditions not only for sexism to flourish, but also for homo trans queer phobia to flourish. Why? Well, because patriarchy can only exist if there is a universal acceptance of this myth of heteronormativity. So heteronormativity is a world in which heterosexuality is the only normative sexuality. And any deviation from this is marked as perverse and broken. The power and privilege derived from heteronormativity really fuels patriarchy, thus patriarchy must advance certain logics to protect its preeminence. Hence, sexism, homo, trans, queer, phobia, queer, gender, and sexuality as the ultimate subversion of heteronormativity calls into question patriarchy's power and privilege. Just thinking of it a different way, we exist, therefore, mm. patriarchy must be suspect. Thus, the patriarchy deploys homo-trans queerphobia to safeguard this power and privilege. Okay, I have a, a question for you that I want to go back to because you brought up a, like a Venn diagram. So I have that in my mind. You mentioned that early about um, the overlap between sexism and homophobia. And I remember a conversation that you and I had 
when we were in the International Women's Health and Human Rights class, and you explained it so well in a way that I really had an epiphany. So could you talk more about that, that Venn diagram of sexism and homophobia? Sure, absolutely. So mm -hmm. sexism and homotransqueerphobia are really two sides to the same coin. Misogyny, this is the hatred of women, but not just that, and their power. Mm. And homotransqueerphobia being basically the same, hatred or fear of anyone perceived to be like a woman mm -hmm. or transcending those binaries and their power. This need not be a man's posture, but this is the default setting that men are born into, you know, mm -hmm. because in the eyes of cishet men, why would any men willfully trade their power away in a patriarchal world in being like a woman, trading their power and privileges men for the subordinated status of women? So lesbians, gays, bisexuals, and transgender persons are really living symbols of the absurdity of patriarchy, the power relations that map so easily on to male and female in American society, we, just by breathing, just by speaking, just by walking and being in the world, we are upending those power relationships. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it just makes it click. Thanks for explaining that again. The way I'm hearing it, the way it's striking me is that this structure that imprisons straight women on the basis of their sex is the same structure that imprisons our queer siblings because of their sexuality as well. It's the same system. And so. Yeah. And I mean, just think about this in terms of patriarchal politics, that so-called, you know, culture war that we hear so much about, that they're fought along the axes of reproductive rights and LGBTQ rights, that mm. this lobby, this patriarchal lobby is funneling their energy to combat both of those things as aggressively as possible, both of them. Is that a coincidence? Of course it's not, because sexism and heteronormativity are just two sides to the same coin. So that's why in a positive direction, women and LGBTQ people see common allies in each other to mm -hmm. fight oppression. Mm. Okay. Oh, it's so clear. Thank you, Matthew. So now let's turn to the text itself, to the Obergefell decision that we're discussing today, and then just kind of help us in terms of like the legal history and the cultural history, how did we arrive at the Supreme Court decision that we're discussing today? Or put differently, how did queer politics come to embrace marriage equality as a priority? You know, stated simply, what would one day become the LGBTQ community was fiercely divided on how we should be in a heteronormative world and how we would advocate for our own dignity, our mm. recognition and rights. Perhaps it is helpful to think of two factions angling for influence among non-normative gender and sexual pariahs of American culture. We, we might think of them as two camps, the assimilationists and the liberationists. And this will be helpful mm. for next episode as well. So mm -hmm. let's really try to get this in our heads that the queer community is not of one mind about how to proceed 
you have the assimilationists and the liberationists. Then, this is where it all changes, this is the shift. The history-defining Stonewall and riots of 1969. This was a violent uprising that occurred in Greenwich Village of Manhattan. Now, undercover police raided these gay bars. They would often harass the patrons, blackmail the patrons, um, and they would charge them with crimes. But in 1969, at the Stonewall Inn, the patrons had had enough. The Stonewallers, as they were called, fought back, and they did so for three days. So LGBTQ, LGBTQ people really remember Stonewall as women remember Seneca Falls and African-Americans remember Selma. So let's quicken our pace just a little bit here. Um, the 1970s ushered in queer fever dreams of hmm. political organizing, free, unbridled love, lots of sex happening in bathhouses. This is complete liberation. This is the pent-up liberation that queers had been longing for. Then in 1981, reports of a, quote, gay cancer were circulating. Mm -hmm. The HIV AIDS crisis of the long 1980s from 1981 to 1996 would bring that party to an abrupt end. The assimilationists would see an opportunity to assert their agenda in the midst of this chaos, this death, this despair. So lamentably, I would say, rather than transforming the world into a queer planet, to quote Michael Warner, our first queer theorist in the next episode, gays and lesbians moved toward the goal of inclusion into basically two of society's most conservative institutions, the military and marriage. Mm -hmm. So we are looking at a Supreme Court decision today. So it is incumbent upon us as good students of the law that we back up a little bit here before we approach a text and look at this legal story that mm. precedes Obergefell. So let's, let's go back to 1986. By 1986, we just have President Reagan for the very first time admitting that AIDS exists. Mm -hmm. The gay community has lost tens of thousands of people. And Bowers versus Hardwick, which is a Supreme Court decision that upheld Georgia's anti-sodomy law, um, you know, while the right to privacy failed to be extended here to consensual sexual intimacy between same-sex persons, this is what Bowers versus Hardwick decided, it thrust discrimination against sexual minorities into the spotlight. What's very important to think about is that gay men are considered vile, repulsive. They're considered sexual predators. But when HIV AIDS hits the community and the community rallies itself to care for each other, to love each other, to find a solution, to find a cure for HIV AIDS, to stand up against a recalcitrant bureaucracy in the American government who would do nothing. When their stories are told in the media, people gain some sympathy for the LGBTQ community. Mm. So if we can skip ahead then 10 years later, 
there is a Colorado proposition that states that if any city or jurisdiction passes a law that protects LGBTQ people against discrimination, we will reject it out of hand. That was the proposition in Colorado. Romer v. Evans, which was decided by the Supreme Court, again, authored by Justice Anthony Kennedy, Hmm. who would string together these gay rights decisions, struck down that Colorado proposition that banned these cities from passing anti-discrimination laws and protecting gay and bisexual people. He wrote that the law was unprecedented, quote unquote, in the way that it eliminated a whole group of people's right to seek specific protection from the law. Hmm. So it established the precedent that LGBTQ people cannot be singled out as a class of people to be discriminated against. I mean, if you can imagine, you need to have a Supreme Court decision that says that you should not go out of your way to hurt people. Hmm. Unbelievable. But that, Amy, is what Romer v. Evans decided. Yeah, that's where we were. Wow. Yeah. Now, getting back to marriage here, suffice to say, by the mid-90s, the Republicans force Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton is very reluctant to do so, but he does so anyway. He signs the Defense of Marriage Act, um, Mm -hmm. which was the federal government and states saying together that they're going to remember, they're going to recognize marriage as a union between a man and a woman only. This upheld the state's right to marriage discrimination. Simultaneous to this, LGBTQ people are trying to fight the military. They want to serve openly in the military. And in 1998, Bill Clinton signs a compromise to that, the don't ask, don't tell policy. Mm. Now, things would change in 2003 with Lawrence v. Texas, which was a Supreme Court case that essentially reverses Bowers and extends Romer. Again, Justice Kennedy is writing. And In the majority opinion, he states that homosexual persons had the right to privacy in their own homes. And Justice Antonin Scalia, writing for the minority, said, in deciding Lawrence v. Texas, that the floods would be released from the dam and gay rights would flow through the land. Hmm. And Antonin Scalia was right. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> yep. And you know, this immediately emboldened states to take up LGBTQ rights causes, mm-hmm. particularly um in Massachusetts with the Goodrich versus the Department of Health decision, which sanctioned marriages for the Bay State. Mm, that's amazing. Yeah, it is. But you know, as as you know. These civil rights advancements take one step forward and two steps back because as you talked about in your story that even though the California Supreme Court ruled for same-sex couples, California reverses that momentum, reverses that happiness with the Proposition 8 ballot measure declaring all same-sex marriages from that point forward to be unconstitutional. It did not render null and void the marriages that had occurred, but it just Mm -hmm. stopped any further marriages in California between same-sex couples from proceeding. Okay. Mm -hmm. And um, Judge Walker would then have this very public trial. Experts, K-12 
came in, one ended up recanting, the other one said, I'm sorry, I really don't have much substance to what I'm saying. There really is no expert opinion that will defend the yes on Prop 8 arguments. So we rest our case. And of course, we know the rest of that story as Prop 8 is overturned. But in 2013, and this is where the Defense of Marriage Act comes in, this is United States versus Windsor with the case of a woman named Edith Windsor. The Supreme Court, in another decision authored by Justice Kennedy, agreed with the lower courts that the ban on federal recognition of same-sex couples was unconstitutional. The federal government must recognize same-sex marriages from states with marriage equality. So in this case, this was New York. And what Edith Windsor was hoping at the Supreme Court to be decided is that she could take her marriage elsewhere in the United States, that she wasn't just gay married in New York, she could be Mm. gay married anywhere. So this essentially knocked out Section 3 of DOMA. Mm. But Section 2 of DOMA, where the country defined marriages between one man and one woman, this was still on the books. So this is how we arrived to the Supreme Court in 2015 with Obergefell versus Hodges. Mm. Okay, wow. Ha, perfect. Okay, so now we've arrived. We've arrived at um, a Bergefell. So this is great. Keep going. Just keep teaching us about it. This is fantastic. Okay. Well, shortly after the Windsor decision, um, and a love that spanned two decades, a dude named Jim Obergefell and John Arthur married in Maryland in 2013. Hmm. Mr. Arthur was receiving hospice care Sadly, after receiving a diagnosis of ALS or uh, Lou Gehrig's disease two years earlier, a few months after the newlyweds returned to Ohio from being married, Mr. Arthur died. Mm -hmm. Obergefell sued Ohio, alleging discrimination against his same-sex relationship by refusing to identify his name on the death certificate of his husband. Mm -hmm. The case continued all the way to the Supreme Court, a fight that ultimately resulted in all marriage bans nationwide being struck down on June 26, 2015. So mm-hmm. now that we've mastered that, let's turn our attention to Justice Kennedy's decision here, okay? Okay. All right. So Kennedy is agreeing with the plaintiff's defense. He is saying that, indeed, the right to marry for same-sex couples does hinge on whether the due process and equal protection clauses of the 14th Amendment permit it. Um, Quoting from the decision, the fundamental liberties protected by this clause include most of the rights enumerated in the Bill of Rights. In addition, these liberties extend to certain personal choices central to individual dignity and autonomy, including intimate choices that define personal identity and beliefs. Now, that's his opening salvo, and to my delight, Anthony Kennedy proceeds right into history in order to anchor this initial premise here, this culminating premise, but this initial premise that he takes. Uh, he, He took his decision right to the beginning with a sort of encomium of marriage. This is so beautiful. Amy, would you read this highfalutin language that he uses here? (laughs) I will do my best, yes. 
Quote, the centrality of marriage to the human condition makes it unsurprising that the institution has existed for millennia and across civilizations. Since the dawn of history, marriage has transformed strangers into relatives, binding families and societies together. There are untold references to the beauty of marriage in religious and philosophical texts spanning time, cultures, and faiths, as well as in art and literature in all their forms. It is fair and necessary to say these references were based on the understanding that marriage is a union between two persons of the opposite sex. The petitioners acknowledge this history, but contend that these cases cannot end there. Were their intent to demean the revered idea and reality of marriage, the petitioners' claims would be of a different order, but that is neither their purpose nor their submission. To the contrary, it is the enduring importance of marriage that underlies the petitioners' contentions. This, they say, is their whole point. Far from seeking to devalue marriage, the petitioners seek it for themselves because of their respect and need for its privileges and responsibilities. And their immutable nature dictates that same-sex marriage is their only real path to this profound commitment. End quote. Wow. That's so powerful, reading it out loud. I hadn't read it out loud or heard it read out loud before, but wow, it gave me chills reading it. It really is this majestic rhetoric speaking to the best of what marriage can be in American society. Absolutely. That's lovely. Yeah. So next, Kennedy details the struggle of the LGBTQ community to fight discrimination. And it's all of the things that we've discussed earlier. He is bringing them into the conversation. He wants the world to see how the LGBTQ community fought back. He says that that's an important thing to keep in mind because look at the courage. They are possessed of a conviction that is so compelling to us that we must take note of it. So he says that's important to know. And then he also says that case law is important here. Kennedy is saying that the case law also justifies the legitimacy of LGBTQ people to advocate for marriage rights. So he goes through that history that we just looked at. Then Kennedy maintained that the courts must intervene when there is some equivocation between the promises of the due process and equal protection clauses and these claims of discrimination. So he says, and I quote, the nature of injustice is that we may not always see it in our own times. The generations that wrote and ratified the Bill of Rights in the 14th Amendment did not presume to know the extent of freedom in all of its dimensions. And so they entrusted a future generation, a charter protecting the right of all persons to enjoy liberty as we learn its meaning. Mm -hmm. When new insight reveals discord between the Constitution's central protections and a received legal stricture, a claim to liberty must be addressed. Mm -hmm. So Kennedy proceeded to lay out the planks of his decision in favor of the plaintiffs. So let's look at the first plank here. He cites Loving versus Virginia of 1967, the court case that decreed all state anti-miscegenation laws unconstitutional. Kennedy asserted that the right to personal choice regarding marriage is inherent in the concept of individual autonomy. He's saying such important life decisions should not be infringed on by the state. 
So that's his first plank. His second plank is that marriage is a fundamental right, and we have to see it as a fundamental right. So that's the second plank. The third plank follows from this, where Justice Kennedy says that marriage, quote, safeguards children and families and thus draws meaning from related rights to childbearing, protection, and education. See, same-sex couples have children too. So the logic here is that because so many of these same-sex couples have children and these families deserve the rights, protections, and privileges that marriage affords, why would the court not allow the children to enjoy the protections, privileges, rights, responsibilities that come along with marriage? They too should enjoy those as well. Mm -hmm. And then finally, the fourth plank here is that marriage is the fundamental organizing principle of society. Now, I would say we might want to question whether that's true, whether it has to be true, but this is what Kennedy and is we saying. Will. It says marriage is that fundamental organizing principle of society, and the state really has a vested interest in encouraging it through what he says, quote, is a symbolic recognition and material benefit to protect and nourish marital unions. He enumerated what this state involved, um, you know, slate of uh, benefits entails. He says it's taxation. It's about inheritance and property rights. It's about the rules of interstate succession, spousal privilege in the law of evidence, hospital rights, hospital visitation rights, medical decision-making authority, he says, adoption rights, the rights and benefits of survivors, birth and death certificates, professional ethics rules, campaign finance restrictions, workers' comp benefits, health insurance, child custody, support and visitation rules, on and on and on, he says, marriage is a vehicle to give this to people. So how could we prevent a whole class of people from having access to all of these things? We can't. Mm -hmm. Kennedy concludes this would be an injustice. Mm -hmm. Amy, do you want to read how he concludes the decision here? Yes. Quote, by virtue of their exclusion from that institution, same-sex couples are denied the constellation of benefits that the states have linked to marriage. This harm results in more than just material burdens. Same-sex couples are consigned to an instability many opposite-sex couples would deem intolerable in their own lives. As the state itself makes marriage all the more precious by the significance it attaches to it, exclusion from that status has the effect of teaching that gays and lesbians are unequal in important respects. It demeans gays and lesbians for the state to lock them out of a central institution of the nation's society. Same-sex couples, too, may aspire to the transcendent purposes of marriage and seek fulfillment in its highest meaning. The limitation of marriage to opposite-sex couples may long have seemed natural and just, but its inconsistency with the central meaning of the fundamental right to marry is now manifest. With that knowledge must come the recognition that laws excluding same-sex couples from the marriage right impose stigma and injury of the kind prohibited by our basic charter, end quote. Thank you. And he continued later in the decision, the imposition of this disability of gays and lesbians serves to disrespect and subordinate them. And the Equal Protection Clause, like the Due Process Clause, prohibits this unjustified infringement of the fundamental right to marry. These considerations lead to the conclusion 
that the right to marry is a fundamental right inherent in the liberty of the person and under the due process and equal protection clauses of the 14th Amendment, couples of the same sex may not be deprived of that right and that liberty. The court now holds that same-sex couples may exercise the fundamental right to marry. No longer may this liberty be denied to them. And there it is. As it is. is true. Hooray. So consistent with Kennedy, he's brought all of these decisions along as if sort of a nursemaid giving rise to LGBTQ rights, particularly of marriage equality rights. So he's bringing it along. And this is the apotheosis of all of his work for mm -hmm. a couple of decades. And he's mm -hmm. conscious about what history is going to think of him. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah, he knew he was changing the world. He knew people like us would be reading this and will be forever after in, in history classes. It's one of the defining documents in history now. It, it's amazing. Okay, so then back to what uh, to where we were going to go before the, that little uh, detour. So the next point was, where do we go from here, right? Where is this ongoing battle in the culture war? Where does it proceed from Obergefell? What's next? I think that we, we need to understand we're, we're really not there yet. Unfortunately, the judicial and legislative gains made in the last couple of decades are just not enough to protect mm. LGBTQ people and their families. Okay. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode. I'm just like overwhelmed with, I mean, the amount of information that you just imparted to, to all of us. <laughs> and so, so grateful. That was such an, a fantastic history lesson and just super grateful. So again, thank you, Matthew. You are just the best, incredible <laughs> teacher, such a dear friend and wonderful human being. Thank you so much for being here. And thank you listeners for joining us today. It's just been such a great experience. Mm -hmm.